The bliss of the abyss, it's here now. Hello, welcome back to the bliss of the abyss. I am, of course, as ever, your host, Robert Newmark-Jones, and you are listening to this show, using your ears, your eyes, your nose, your fingertips, everything, everything that you can. Today's show is with Joshua Shea, and he is an addiction expert in pornography, betrayal trauma, alcoholism... Uh, He's a therapeutic disclosure specialist. He is the author of four books about pornography. Um, And since 2018, he's been giving interviews all around the world. He's been he's given a TEDx talk. He's basically seeking to help people uh, with their problems before it's too late. You know, working through trauma with partners of addicts. And before this, he had a, a completely different life, a, a 24-year addiction to pornography that was hidden the whole time beneath being a magazine publisher, an award-winning journalist, a film festival founder, and even a, a local politician in uh, in Maine, which is where he still lives uh, with his wife and, and two children, cu- currently four dogs and seven cats, which apparently is ever-changing. Um, and you can find everything at paddictrecovery.com and I'll put all the links in the show notes to this episode as well. Uh, This was a fascinating talk. Whether or not you yourself are wrestling with the demons of addiction and recovery, um, I still think you'll find this elusive and illustrative. And if you're not, if you're if you're not, then well done, more power to you. If you are wrestling with those demons, there is a lot of help out there. And I know for a fact that you can reach out for an initial no obligation 30 to 60 minute session with Joshua just go to his website he's a lovely guy as you'll hear from this chat but anyway enough babble from me and let me instead introduce to you my chat with the wonderful Joshua Shea Joshua Shea, welcome to the bliss of the abyss, all the way from across the Atlantic. How are you doing? I am having a wonderful snowy morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm not having a snowy morning, but I am frozen stiff. That's because I'm a wuss, unlike you, hardened man of the north. If it drops anywhere close to freezing, I am wearing cashmere and I'm under four layers of clothing. Unlike you, you're just wearing a t-shirt. Look at you, very. Wearing a t-shirt. I've got no socks on. I'm 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 perfectly fine. Very very strong. Well, look, thanks for agreeing to uh, come on the show and beat the storm. Um, I'm, I promise we'll have you out in in good time. Um, for those who are not acquainted with your work, do you want to give a little introduction to who you are and how you've come to be on the show and what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. My name's Joshua Shea. Uh, my origin story is pretty simple. I started to use pornography at 12 years old. I developed an addiction the first time I started watching at 12. At 14, I took up alcohol. So I was an alcoholic and a pornography addict for uh, 22 and 24 years, respectively. And I quit using around 36, 37 years old. That's, that brings us back. Uh, I've, I'm now sober eight years. 
Um, when I got into early recovery, I recognized that there was no materials out there mm. for pornography addiction. You had some things written by wives of porn addicts, and you had the uh, studies that are out there. But for most people, reading those studies is like reading Shakespeare. It's kind of English, but it's kind of not. Mm -hmm. And I decided that with my history as a journalist, with my history as a researcher, that um, I could uh, perhaps bring something to this space. So I wrote my first book. It got a wonderful response. And uh, I've been doing this stuff ever since as far as education, writing about it, appearing on shows like yours, doing talks in libraries, colleges, that kind of stuff. And then two years ago uh, or three years ago now when the uh, pandemic started, uh, I realized if I was going to continue to stay in this space and, and make a living, um, I moved into the coaching area. So I now also coach both pornography addicts and their partners who are suffering from betrayal trauma. I'm certified in both areas. Um, and this is kind of my life. I go around and I talk about pornography addiction and its effects and, uh, hopefully, you know, create some good in this world where maybe I wasn't doing that in the past when I was an actual addict. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. It must be, uh, it must be a very different day to day from, uh, from managing two addictions to, uh, you know, keeping them. I mean, they're still kind of the, the center of your world but you're in charge of them rather than them being in charge of you would that be fair to say absolutely and i think that in some ways this may be just a super extended version of recovery mm. i think that you know i stopped doing 12 step groups several years back mm. uh because where i live they just they just didn't have much to offer it's very rural mm. and uh, i think that coming on shows like yours and i think that you know making these appearances and talking about this this mm. this is part of my recovery and i've just right. been lucky enough to figure a way to fold it into my profession and uh i love what i'm doing and you know, I, I spent years as a journalist, years as an editor, years as a magazine publisher, but this is what it feels like I'm supposed to be doing, even if I'm only making a fraction of what I was making money-wise back 10, 12 years ago. This feels, you know, in my soul what I'm supposed to be doing. All right. Okay. And whereas before in your previous life, even if you were perhaps it was more lucrative, did it feel in your soul like it was the wrong thing then? Were you aware, very aware that you were sort of transgressing your own morals every day, every act? I knew I wasn't healthy. I mean, put it that way. I knew something was going to catch up with me sooner or later. Mm. Um, I was one of these people who hid my addictions by overachieving. Like I said, I was the publisher of a magazine company where we produced three or four titles here in the Northeast. And uh, I was also on my local city council. So I was a politician. I was also one of the founders of a very large film festival that went on for several years here uh, in the Northeast. Um, so I was always busy. That's the way that I kind of hid my problems is that I was a massive overachiever. And, you know, if you would have told me 10 years ago, you're going to make a living by sitting at home and talking to people one on one over the computer, I'd be like, well, no, I, I have to communicate to thousands. I, I'm, I'm a very important person. People need to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And it just, it took, 
it took recovery for me to recognize that all of that adulation I was looking for from other people was part of filling the hole that was in me from, you know, trauma that I'd never dealt with when I was a kid. And that's really the story when it comes to addiction, whether you're talking about drugs, alcohol, gambling, food, sex, porn, it doesn't matter. Mm. Most of us are trying to fill a hole that's inside of us that we may not even realize is there until we start to address it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's definitely been my experience of uh, of addiction, both from a personal point of view, but more uh, from a family point of view. My my mother in law uh, passed away during the pandemic from alcohol addiction. She'd been oh, an addict for, for a long, long time, in and out of recovery, cycles of abuse, and terrible, terrible uh, situation that she went through, um, and never man- managed to find a way out the way that you have. Um, so for people out there who are listening to this, who might be in that spiral and trying to find a way out, what, what would you say is your is the broadest way that you can offer them a way? And obviously they, they will talk, you know, one to one and you offer coaching and I will link and promote all of your coaching. But what is what's the way that you can get through that noise in their head and reach out to them, do you think? I think the most important thing is to find somebody who has made it through, whether you go to a 12-step group or you find a somebody online in, in a forum, whether you go to uh, you know uh, some kind of self-help, uh, maybe it's a smart recovery group, whatever it is, find somebody who is in recovery and who is further along than you and forget the medical side of things for a minute, just the personal side. If you can talk to somebody who can give you some hope, I think that's the most important thing. When we all start recovery, we don't know how we're going to live our lives without our uh, behavior or our drug of choice. You know, I started with porn when I was 12. I started with alcohol when I was 14. It didn't matter whether I was in school or in university. It didn't matter whether I was dating somebody or I was married. It didn't matter if my kids had been born yet. It didn't matter what happened in my life for 20, 24 years uh, because I always had my two friends, alcohol and porn. And then when you get into recovery and you're basically told, well, we're going to make you feel better by taking away the two things that have always made you feel better. That doesn't make it one plus one doesn't equal two in this in this formula. That doesn't make any sense. I need the alcohol. I need the porn. Well, it turns out you don't. And I can say, uh, having worked with a lot of people, having seen a lot of people through my times in groups, through my times in rehabs, um, it actually does work. And it's it's mind blowing that it works, but you almost need somebody who's going through it, who's been through it to be by your side, to answer questions, to tell you, yes, you can do it. And to perhaps most importantly, not be somebody who judges you. Right. Um, I always make the joke when I went in, I went in first to rehab for alcoholism uh, in 2014. And I say, you know, people, okay, Josh, you get in there. Good job. You're a hero. Go tackle this. You know, let me shake your hand. You go take care of your alcohol problem. And then a year later, I go into rehab for porn addiction and people are not wanting to shake my hand. People are wanting to find the hand sanitizer. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Well, 
you need to find those people who won't judge you. If you have a safe space, if you have people who are willing to listen to you, if you have people you feel that you can be vulnerable around, I think that's really the first step to getting there. Right. Yeah. I think that sound that makes eminent sense to me. Yeah. We are we're a social species, aren't we? No one is an island. And um Absolutely. I'd be really interested to hear some of the, I know you've got some statistics and facts because it feels like the way that society is going, you mentioned the pandemic, we all had to adapt and a lot of people went to remote and, you know, we're talking remotely. So there are massive advantages to it, but it also feels like it might have accelerated some of that atomization that is happening in society. And I feel like maybe some of that loneliness and isolation does contribute towards these negative behaviors and not having a buddy around you or even online or wherever is only going to make these things worse is that is that trends that we're seeing or is that just a just a sort of feeling that i have no you're absolutely correct and we can really when we look at the the uh pornography uh explosion when it comes to addiction you can date it right back to the advent of high speed internet you know, when when I first got on the internet, um, I, you know, I was a porn addict because of magazines, because of videotapes. Mm. Uh, when you first got on the internet, you'd have to sit there for six or seven minutes to download one photo. Yeah. It, it just it, it didn't make any sense. Once we had high speed internet, that's when you saw an explosion. Because I think what happened was we had never seen a technology like this before. Mm. We did not know, you know, how to handle it. We're still in the wild west years of the internet. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everybody has a smartphone and everybody gives their 10-year-old kid a smartphone. Mm. And now that 10-year-old kid has the greatest porn computer that's ever been created in the history of man. And we've got all of these companies around the globe churning out pornography. There's, you know, I always tell people, if you're paying for pornography, you're doing it wrong because there's a, you know, on some of the major sites, you could literally watch pornography for free right now, 24-7 until the day you die and yeah. still not see half of what they have to offer. Right. And that's ultimately, you know, wh where this all went crazy was first when we started to have high-speed internet. And then, like you said, the pandemic was a very big deal, but not necessarily in a big deal like you think. Mm. Uh, what I believe the lasting uh, legacy of the pandemic is going to be is not in those people who found the pornography online. They already knew it was there. Mm. You know, they just they just had more opportunity to watch it. What we saw explode during the pandemic was the people who were creating pornography. If you look at these different types of webcams, oh, like OnlyFans crew, OnlyFans, only here's the statistic for you: on January first, twenty twenty, which was just about when the pandemic was starting to hit over in Europe, hadn't quite hit the U.S. just yet. January first, twenty twenty, there was roughly three hundred thousand people making content on OnlyFans. Two years later, January 1st, 2022, the CEO of OnlyFans said that they had over 2 million content creators. So we added 1.7 million porn stars to the world just with this one website. This doesn't count all of the cam websites. This doesn't count all of the OnlyFans knockoffs that are out there. We are talking millions of people went from having other jobs or were underage and then came of age who 
decided that instead of getting a normal job, instead of getting, you know, a job at McDonald's or a job working at the mall selling clothes, they would go online and and sell their bodies essentially. Mm. And I wrote a book uh, during the pandemic called uh, Porn in the Pandemic, how three months in 2020 changed everything, Mm. how basically I show that in three months, about five years worth of what would have happened in non-pandemic times went through the porn world. And I interviewed a lot of people who were kind of forced into the world of creating pornography because they lost their jobs. They were furloughed. And I'm not going to, you know, slam anybody who has to you know, make ends meet or keep a roof over their head. Right. <laughs> we will cut that out. Okay. <laughs> So I, I have I have nothing against those people, but what scared me was in the beginning when I interviewed them, when I first started my research, they're like, yes, I'm here for the money. I'm going to keep it, you know, very classy. I'm going to keep it, you know, very above brow. I don't want anybody who knows me, you know, finding out about this. Mm-hmm. I just need to make some money. Three, four months later, when I interviewed them, I had a very different story from some of them. Some of them were telling me, you know, there were still some who were in for it for the money, but a lot of them were telling me, you know, before this, I couldn't get a date. And now I've got men from all over the world spending big money watching me do sexy stuff. Mm. And or I've got women from all over the world who are, who are offering me my their hand in marriage mm. because they're lonely and they want to be with me and they think I'm something special. Nobody in real life thinks I'm something special, but when I get onto OnlyFans or when I get onto the cam site, people think that I'm special. People think that I'm wonderful. And you listen to these people and what you're hearing is not that they're there for the commerce anymore. They're there for the love. They're there for the high. They're there for the dopamine hit. Yeah, That's what I really think that in the long run, I think that the pandemic is going to be remembered as the time where we learned not about porn addiction from the consumer's side, but about porn addiction from the producer's side. Because talking to a lot of these people who actually make this pornography, they are addicted to doing this stuff. They are addicted to the attention. They are addicted to the love. And yeah, it's great money, but that's not why they're there anymore. They found a lot of other things that hit them at a soul level that I don't think in the long run is going to be healthy for them. And I can see these people 20 years from now, you know, being 45 years old, 50 years old, still on these sites, you know, not even caring about the money, just trying to get that attention from people because that's a fix that they never had before. And sadly, you know, we need to talk more about this because isn't porn addiction, you know, whether you're producing or consuming, isn't it just opposite sides of the same coin? It's a very interesting question. It does uh, it does echo something that you said earlier about when you were in your previous life about, you know, working really hard and and making loads of money, but kind of filling a hole and just fueling the addiction. And uh, it kind of eerily seems to echo what these people might be doing now with this. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, you know, spinning in that uh, spiral. But where does it end up? Um, and is there a, is there a way out of it if if you go in that deep? I don't know. I mean, I I would hope so, obviously, because it seems like a lot of people probably just dip their toe in because they thought maybe it was an easy buck, or or yeah. they were forced. You know, there were definitely cases of people who were forced either through their own circumstances oh, yeah. 
or from more nefarious people. Um, but I guess to play devil's advocate, uh, is there a way to do this healthily and sustain it long term? Or do you feel like it's inevitably a model that has to eat itself? Um, no, I don't think so. And the reason is because when you look at addiction, um, you know, I can't have beer, but I recognize that there are people who can go to the pub and have one or two beers and then go home and then not drink again for a week or two weeks or whatever. Not a big deal. Mm -hmm. There are people who can drink in a healthy way. And I, I guess I shouldn't say healthy. I guess what I should say is there are people who can drink in a not unhealthy way. Right. There, you know, I can go to a local casino and I can lose $40. I can win $40. And then I walk away, whatever. And, you know, but I can see people who are gambling addicts there who are losing their houses, losing their kids, uh, college funds. Yeah. You know, I think that it's just whatever happened to hit us at that moment uh, when we had some trauma, when we were going through something, uh, that's kind of where we head towards when it comes to addiction. And yeah, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who can look at pornography, who can self-pleasure, who can treat it as a recreational activity, but they're not bound to it the way that somebody who is an addict like I was is bound to it. Um, I think that they can do it in a not unhealthy way. Um, it's just that I'm not one of those types, much like I'm not the type that can also have one beer. That's mm -hmm. just, that's not my makeup. Yeah. And uh, it's one of those kind of categories, I suppose, a bit like, like food, I think of it in the same way that's, it's societally given a green light because it's everywhere. Even if porn has more of a, a pull about it because there's, you know, all those kind of judgments and you hear stories of porn stars struggling to get a loan or a mortgage or whatever, because, you know, although everybody's watching it, we don't want to admit it. Yes. Well, but it's everywhere in the same with food or with alcohol or, or casinos in certain places as well, as opposed to sort of illegal drugs where you get into a different world and you sort of have to, if it's everywhere, you sort of have to have this Herculean self-control of being focused on whatever your recovery looks like, whether it be 12 step right. community or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, you said you offer coaching. Um, how many people who come to you looking for help are curious or is it people who are hitting a rock bottom who who reach out to you? It's mostly people who just before they're hitting what they fear will be a rock bottom mm. is, is what it mostly is. People who are like, okay, I've tried to stop this on my own. I can't. This is starting to cause problems in my life with most of the time it's causing problems with a wife or a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, or they're just recognizing, uh, especially in the case of a lot of men, that they're starting to have erectile dysfunction issues, mm -hmm. or they're starting to view uh, other people almost through the lens of pornography, and people aren't people, people are objects to for their sexual gratification, or some combination of all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, Really, there are about 11 different symptoms when it comes to pornography addiction. And I think as long as you have three or four of them, you can consider yourself an addict. Uh -oh. And the people who come to me have 
generally those symptoms and they want to do something before those symptoms become six or seven or become they before they start to alienate and end up getting divorced and mm. end up with a life that's of a lower quality than they have. They can see it on the horizon. They can see it coming just the same way that I could. I didn't know if it was the pornography that was going to get me or if it was the alcohol, mm. but I could recognize years before uh, everything came to a head that I had to, uh, I had to do something. Unfortunately, I didn't. I ended up getting fired from my job because the other two owners of the company, where there was three of us, they fired me, even though I ran the day-to-day operations. They fired me, and that was that was my rock bottom. And a lot of these people see that rock bottom heading towards them. Those are the addicts. The other side of the people who I deal with are the betrayal trauma uh, people. Those are usually females who have come to find that their husband or their boyfriend is a porn addict, that they have been using it for years, that they've been hiding it from them. And that does quite a number on their psyche. They start to want, well, if he's lied about this, what else has he lied about? Or, okay, well, why is he using porn? Am I not enough in bed? Am I not pretty enough? Am I not good enough for him? You know, all of these problems that start to affect the partner, I deal with them as well. So it's it's across the board, but it's mostly people who uh, recognize that a reckoning is about to come if they don't take care of uh, this problem in a hurry. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I, I think um, probably from the general like perspective, you would it's kind of almost mocked. I remember the thing that happened during the pandemic. Was it Jeffrey Tubin? Do you know what I'm, the story I'm reading? Yes, from CNN. Yes. CNN, who was caught um, masturbating on a Zoom call because he thought he'd ended the call, but um, he clearly hadn't. And, what you know, the, the rea- I mean, we're both smiling now because the reaction, it, it is it is inherently comic. But but for all we know, he might have been dealing with some very serious Absolutely. addiction. Absolutely. I think it, it makes dealing with it harder in much the same way with alcohol the sort of glamorizing of of alcohol as this either as you know this kind of sexy thing or this kind of rock and roll thing makes dealing with it that's its own set of challenges as well and when the two combine it must just be a tinderbox and so many people are doing it these days prior to the internet roughly a quarter of men looked at pornography regularly and less than 10% of women looked at pornography regularly. There were some stats recently that said that of men who use the internet, 91.5% look at porn at least once a month. Of women who use the internet, 60.2% look at pornography at least once a month. So it's, you know, People think we still talk about this like it's the olden days of porn and I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. Well, the fact is almost everybody is doing this now. If you are not doing this, you are in a vast minority of people. Um, You look at statistics of people who are married. Um, 90% of married men use pornography at least once a month. 75% of married women use pornography at least once a month. This is something that people are doing. And we need to stop pretending that, oh, my God, this is gross and we're so puritanical. And, oh, I don't look at naked people doing naked things. That's not natural. And, no, it is natural. It's part of our sexuality. Curiosity is okay. But 
This is like saying, here, do you want to try a cigarette? You try one cigarette, that's not going to kill you. Mm. You try enough cigarettes, it can kill you. Mm. Unfortunately, we te we teach people this with cigarettes. We teach people this with alcohol. We're not yet teaching people this kind of stuff with pornography. It's out there. There is you know, better ways to view it than not. But we're not even telling people about the potential dangers of it. And we need to start doing that in our society. Mm. You know, it's it sucks that in 2022, 2023, we have to start talking about pornography as something that is a danger in our society. But, you know, back in the 1950s, my dad tells stories of hiding under desks when he was a school kid because of nuclear bombs that were going to hit right because desks would save you. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's just a different time. And we need to start as a society dealing with this, talking about the fallout, because if the statistics of young people using are correct, or even if they're really close to correct, we're going to need to start doing something very soon because high-speed internet is changing the way that people uh, act sexually and it's not in a healthy way. And how how true are I mean you would know probably more because I've only heard from sort of a, a generally consuming these things point of view of, you know looking at headlines or statistics how true are those how how real are those problems of for example uh, younger people having massively increased amount of erectile dysfunction or sperm count massively decreasing or you know things like Huge. This. Are they, Huge. Is, this, is this a, a silent epidemic absolutely put it this way when i was 20 years old and using pornography the rate of uh, erectile dysfunction among men my age when i was 20 was two to four percent you look at men who are 20 years old this right now their average of have experiencing erectile dysfunction 22 to 25 percent okay an order of magnitude bigger wow yeah that's ridiculous ridiculous how yeah. high it's gone up yeah um so is, is it anything else other than pornography i can't imagine that it is if you trace when we got high speed internet if you trace how people started using this is exactly it we now understand things like the mind doesn't always know whether it's looking at a screen or whether it's looking at something that is in real life. Yeah. We also know through a, a phenomenon known as the Coolidge effect that animals get bored with repeated viewings of the same sexual material again and again. So if your mind can't tell the difference between your girlfriend or your boyfriend standing in front of you naked and somebody on a screen, yeah, you know, after a while, if you've been with somebody for years, You've seen them naked hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. You've had sex with them hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. You know how that movie ends. Right. And you, but the thing is, with pornography, there's always something new out there. So your mind tends to move towards pornography and something new. And that's why we hear all of these. It's not just erectile dysfunction while looking at porn. Most of the erectile dysfunction is happening in real life while people are with their partners. They're fine with pornography. Um, I had a couple not too long ago who he was fine in the bedroom if pornography was playing on the television set or if they had a laptop computer open and pornography was on. He could get hard. He could finish. You shut down that laptop, you turn off the TV, he couldn't even uh, maintain an erection because he needed that pornography playing everywhere. 
And uh, that's what I think we, that's one of the things that I think you start to tell 11 and 12 year old boys about this. I think you're going to see a big drop in pornography statistics because 11 and 12 year old boys don't want to be porn addicts, but that's when the seeds of pornography addiction start to be planted. The average kid now sees pornography for the first time at 11 years old. And by 13, 14, there's a large percentage, especially of young males who are watching every day. Mm. I don't think that they want to be porn addicts. I think most of them probably want girlfriends or boyfriends. Yeah. They want to be with somebody. They want to you know, experience it for real. But since they can't, they have pornography. Well, we need to educate them about the problem with pornography. Right, exactly. Instead of sort of uh, stigmatizing it, turning it into a taboo, being like, let's not just let's just put our fingers in our ears and go la 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 and hope that it all works out. Because obviously, absolutely, those statistics are, are, are no joke. That's that's a trend that is um, a lot of the time. I think with stuff like this is um, I kind of think of it as the same way as um, a lot of technology, a lot of a lot of food. It's like it, it's it's advanced far faster than evolution can handle. You know, we're not we're not equipped to Absolutely. deal with a Domino's pizza. That would never happen in the wild. So, of course, your brain and your body is like, it has everything I could possibly quick, quick, eat it all. And it's just the same with sort of some of these very stimulating high-speed internet, HD, so real that it feels like you're there. And now we're putting on goggles and, and haptic yeah. feedback and starting to experience this thing. And it's, it's all trending in that direction. I think probably a lot of people probably think maybe maybe there's some technological bullet that we can fix this problem with do you think do you think it's going to go that way or do you think it's more going to be going back to what we talked about before tribal basics human contact community i think that's it i think that we are now you know once people recognize that the be careful of porn speech for your kids is not the birds and the bees speech that we'll be a little bit better off. You know, that's what I think a lot of people are afraid of is, ooh, it's sex. It involves naked people doing naked people things. Why? What am I supposed to do? How do I talk to my kids about this? Well, you know what? You don't have to talk about sex. You and I have been talking now for 40 minutes. We have not got into explicit areas once, and we're not going to because you can talk about pornography without getting explicit. You can make things very, very age appropriate for kids. You can tell a you know a five or six year old kid, hey. You don't ever let anybody take a picture of you without your clothes on, and you don't ever take a picture of anybody without their clothes on, and leave it at that. And then in a year or two, you can be, hey, when you're in school, you may have a friend who has a tablet or a phone, and they may have naked people on it, you know, people without their clothes on. If you see that, make sure you tell a teacher, or when you come home that night, tell me about it, because we need to keep you safe. The be careful of pornography speech it's just like the be careful of smoking speech. It's the be careful of drinking speech. When you're 18 years old and you leave the house, you can decide if you want to use this stuff. But while you live here, we don't use pornography in our house. Mm. Those those kinds of simple speeches have such a big impact on people. 
And I think that uh, if we can get parents to start recognizing it's important to make that kind of speech, we'll be so much better off. Yeah. And a lot of the time, all kids actually want is a reason. So if something is just outright banned, if it's like, because I said so, N-O spells no, that's that doesn't satisfy anyone. You no. just think, hold on, there must be a reason other than just no. And then you start to do your own research. And before well, you do it, you're finding some... Terrible. And it turns out naked people are fun to look at. Naked <laughs> people are interesting to look at. Watching people have sex is interesting. Watching people yeah. have sex is is exciting. It gets it does things to your body and it makes you want to do things to your own body. Yeah. That's all completely natural. That's all completely okay. Sexuality is a wonderful, beautiful thing. You know, I tell people I am not anti-pornography. That would, you know, trying to ban pornography is like trying to ban drinking. And we saw what happened in the U.S. Right. 100 years ago when they tried that folly. You know, yeah. I don't think we're never going to ban pornography yeah. because it's completely natural and it's completely understandable to be curious about sexuality, to be interested in seeing depictions of sexuality. But we need to understand that it also comes with a very dark side that a lot of people, as it turns out, are susceptible to. Mm, mm, yeah, like so many things. It's a really good point. Yeah moderation in regards to all things is probably a pretty good mantra to to live by when yeah. so some of us can't moderate like i said with my drinking i can't have one pint i wish i could but i can't how how soon after having your first drink did you realize that you couldn't just have one because presumably the first time you had one you just had one and it made you feel weird and you know uh, yeah it it was the first time i ever got drunk you know really? i was one of these guys who the first time i used porn recognized I was an addict or recognized that I had found something very special. Uh, probably didn't think about addiction for a long, long time. First time I ever got drunk when I was 14 years old. Oh my goodness. I get why people do this now. This feels great. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, those were my two passengers with me the rest of my life until I was 37 years old and first got help for the alcoholism is that these were the two things I could count on to always make me feel better, no matter who was in my life, no matter what was going on. Um, these these were the things that I knew they were not healthy for me. Mm. But when when stuff's going bad, you go to what you know, and there are my two crutches right there, one under each arm. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, in the recovery process, they're basically telling you, well, we're going to kick out your crutches and you're going to learn to walk. And it's like, well, I can't do that. But in reality, you absolutely can. Yeah. What I find so interesting about um, addiction in that way is that it, 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 it manages to tell a story inside your head that doesn't actually comport with reality. Like um, I have very intimate knowledge of, of alcohol addiction of, of it's my friend. I'll go to it and it will give me pleasure. And the reality <laughs> is the idea of it might provide you with comfort the idea it's your friend but almost as soon as you start drinking you, you it's not helping you it's turning yeah. you inside out it's making you angry it's making you depressed what however it affects you it affects lots of people lots of different ways but it very rarely is like 
ah, and now I'm chill. It just doesn't have that effect, it, but it it sings to you. It's that siren song that tells you that that's what it will do, and then it doesn't. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's you know, it's one of these things where it's like it comes with promises of relief. Mm-hmm. You know, you have relief from stress, relief from anxiety, relief from all the bad things in the world. You know, you go open this can of worms and, uh, yeah, ultimately it doesn't make you feel better, but it did once. And that's mm-hmm. what you chase. That's what you keep chasing. People are like, oh, you know, addicts are always looking for the next big high. And I said, we're never looking for the next big high. We're looking for the same old high. That's the problem. That's why things escalate. That's why things get worse and worse because your body gets used to it and you have to drink more. I got to the point where I couldn't drink beer anymore. I wouldn't get drunk off of beer. I had to move on to the harder stuff that I thought tasted terrible because I needed that feeling. I needed those you know, chemicals coming from my mind to make me feel better and beer couldn't do it anymore. I had to escalate. And it's the same with thing with pornography. People who watch 15, 20 minutes, suddenly, you know, a few years later, I hear from them all the time where it's like, I sit down to look at porn and two year, two hours is gone. And I'm still not done because I'm looking for the perfect piece of porn to finish with. <laughs> oh my God. It escalates and it escalates and it escalates. Wow. Yeah. I suppose that's, was it the Coolidge effect that you mentioned? That's, that's yeah. a sort of that hunt for novelty can just be absolutely Absolutely. Jesus, hours and hours of just chasing and what's it all for the crazy thing with that of course is once it's over it's not like that was really worth the three-hour journey that's when the shame comes that's when the embarrassment comes that's when the you know judging yourself comes and feeling worthless and making promises to yourself that you know you won't be able to keep next time uh yeah i know a lot of self-loathing involved with it it's it's there's nothing good about it but your brain tells you you need those chemicals even if it's just for a couple seconds that quick fix yeah hey i'm curious this might be a bit of a strange question so feel free to just bat it back at me but um um, you you must be familiar with the um, concept of a dry drunk. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for those people out there who don't know what that is, there's someone who, who isn't drinking anymore, but hasn't actually dealt with the problems of alcoholism and is still displaying those behaviors and still in that addiction cycle, even though they're managing to resist alcohol in that moment. Is there such a thing as that with pornography, almost like a dry addict with porn? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can white knuckle anything, you know, you can white knuckle anything. But if you don't go back and deal with the ultimate problem of the uh, uh, of Jesus Christ, how could trauma? Okay, ready? One, two, three. If you don't go back and recognize the problem with the trauma, you're never going to take care of it. And I describe it very simply as imagine you have a giant cut in your arm. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you do is you take a bandage and you wrap it all up. Well, a bandage doesn't actually heal anything. A bandage doesn't actually help anything. Now imagine that big cut is your trauma and then you've wrapped the bandage. That bandage is your addiction. The addiction may hide the trauma. The addiction may hide the cut, but 
it doesn't actually help it at all. What you have to do, if you're going to heal that cut, you have to take that bandage off and you have to clean out that cut. You have to address that cut. What needs to be done to heal this? You can't just hide it with that bandage. And unfortunately, people try to hide things with their addiction for so long. Those people who are white knuckling it, yeah, maybe they take that bandage off, but they're still sitting there with an arm full of infection, with an arm that's fully still cut. You need to deal with the deeper stuff. And I know it sucks. I had to go through it myself. It's not a fun process dealing with trauma, especially if you've got any sexual or physical uh, abuse in your past that created part of that trauma. You've got to go back and relive that stuff. And it is horrible. It is not fun. Fun. It is it is saddening and maddening and frustrating. And you feel for the person that you were when you were younger. And it's such a grueling process to go through trauma and to sort it out. But the other side of it, that's what everybody thinks doesn't exist. That other side is wonderful. I can tell you now at, you know, in my mid-40s, I am so much healthier spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally than I ever was in my mid-30s when I was still uh, drinking and still using pornography every day. Wow. Yeah, that's really impactful. I think that's right. And that's 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 why people have that aversion to it because it's the hard work. And it's why people want the, the magic bullet, the, the pharmaceutical intervention that's going to magically make stuff go away. But that just is not how life works. Just, just just in the same way that addiction isn't just actually a relief when you when you tickle the itch. It's not. It's the same thing. I kind of. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. So um, when people come to you for for help with their addictions, how long is the program typically? How how? It depends who they are. It depends how seriously they take it. It depends um, what level they're at when it comes to addiction. I've got people who come to me who are low level ad- addicts who, you know, recognize that they're developing a problem and it's easier for them to take care of it than somebody who is, you know, right on the edge of that abyss of, of rock bottom of falling into it and not coming back. You know, it takes them a bit longer. It also is, you know, how willing are you to deal with the trauma? How willing are you to start talking about some of these difficult things? Because it's not that difficult to get you to drop your porn use 50, 60, even 70% within a week or two. It's really not that difficult. What's more difficult is getting to the root of why were you doing this in the first place? Because it changes over time. You know, when I was 12, 13 years old, the reason that I started drinking, the reason that I started using porn, it's not the reason that I was using at 25 or using at 35. I got through that trauma. And I think what happens, and this is this is not scientific whatsoever, it's just my theory. I think what happens is that we get through this horrible trauma or I should say we believe we get through this horrible trauma. We just kind of put it on a uh, shelf for later uh, usage. Um, And we go back to our regular life. And then we find out, you know, a bad day can be made better by your addiction. Because early on, it still makes you feel good. You know, early on, when I was 15, 16 years old, three beers felt better to me than 20 years later when I'd have half a bottle of tequila. 
Mm-hmm. You know, those three beers made me feel like I was on top of the world. And that's kind of the the escalation where it starts and where it moves is you just keep going down this path and going down this path and where it feels good early on. Well, now I'm having a perfectly good day, mm-hmm. but I still need to use. You know, I'm having a great day, but I still need to use because it just becomes part of the routine. Yeah, and and obviously one of the associated problems with I don't know much about as much with porn, but with alcohol is that it's associated with both sad and happy times. So something goes wrong, have a drink, I'll make it better. Yeah. Something goes right, celebrate, have a drink. And so it becomes enmeshed in every part of your life and picking out becomes that much trickier. And I suppose it's the same theory of when you're younger and your brain is developing, if it's getting its hooks, not to talk about chemical hooks, because I know that's a whole other topic, but if it's getting its claws into you metaphorically early on, it can get burrow that bit deeper as your psyche develops as you grow. Um, and that's why, as you were saying earlier, having those conversations earlier, understanding what's happening to you is so much more important. Absolutely. How fascinating. Hmm. Well... Um, thank you so much for for agreeing to uh, come on the show. Um, if people want to want to reach out and and find uh, find a way to talk to you for for help, how how would be the best way to do that? Uh, you can reach me through my website. It's paddictrecovery.com. That's the letter P addictrecovery.com. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram, and that is also P Addict Recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the two best places to reach me. Great. Okay. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much, Joshua. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, beat that storm. <laughs> I'm going to try. You're going to pack up, get out of this hotel room and, uh, and and try to get ahead of it. Awesome. Take care. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thanks for listening to the show if you've enjoyed it please give us five stars and consider becoming a subscriber and maybe even supporting us on patreon really 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 helps me continue making this show uh, if you haven't enjoyed it then you can fuck off many many thanks to nil tennis steer for the amazing music and to dave fox for the cool artwork please keep coming back every week for more bliss of the abyss one.